On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities. David Troyer's book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, has been nominated for a National Book Award. When I spoke with him in 2008, he was in the midst of a fascinating project with his brother, the linguist Anton Troyer, to compile the first practical grammar of the Ojibwe people. This conversation speaks gently and beautifully to why the recovery of tribal languages and names is part of a fuller recovery of our national story and the human story. And it holds unexpected observations altogether about language and meaning that most of us express unselfconsciously in our mother tongues. This is what Ojibwe sounds like. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. David Troyer splits his time between Los Angeles and the Leech Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota. He grew up there, the son of an Ojibwe mother and a Jewish-Austrian father. He went away to study at Princeton and then returned to the reservation, where he learned the Ojibwe language for the first time as an adult. You know, as we begin, let's just... <laughs> language around this whole subject um, is, is so complicated. Um, I, is. I will confess, actually, I had not realized until I dug into this, and I didn't grow up in this part of the country, but I don't know if that's mm. an excuse. I grew up in Oklahoma. <laughs> um, we, <I> <laughs> it may not be an excuse then. <laughs> no, well, I know, but we've, I grew up in a place called Shawnee in Pottawatomie County, and Tecumseh was next door. But Ojibwe, I well. don't remember hearing about. Um, but anyway, that Ojibwe and Chippewa... Are in fact the same. The it is that they are the same. I had no idea of that. Um, and then, I mean, then of course the more fraught um, f- phrase is in terms of how the larger culture speaks about Native people. I mean, you do you refer to mm. yourself as Indian or Native American, and and why does it matter to you? Well, it matters. It matters greatly for a lot of people. For me, I don't. This seems kind of funny being a writer and being a language guy. Those phrases aren't as important to me as Ojibwe, hmm. Anishinaabe, and okay. so on. The phrases that we have for ourselves in our own language. Um, one of my cousins came up with a, a great phrase for me. He said, you know, was, since you're Indian, you'd be Anishinaabe. But since you're Jewish and Indian, I think we should call you Jewishinaabe. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's my cousin. <laughs> so. Um. And you write a lot about how much association and imagery the word Indian contains in an American imagination, and not just in an American imagination, the Mm. global imagination, and that this gets in the way of really understanding. It does. It does. We kind of live wearing really elaborate disguises, not really of our own devising. You mean we Indians, you... You, yeah. you, you and your people. Mm-hmm. Sure. 
that we live, you know, beyond and behind, you know, these these ideas about what a quote unquote real Indian is, or a quote unquote traditional Indian, or or what reservation life is like, and the ideas that people have about these things are are typically poorly informed ideas and ideas drawn from from the Indian of the imagination, hmm. the Indian, you know, the James Fenmore Cooper's Indians or or um, the Indians one finds in Dances with Wolves and, and so on. So so our lives, our, our lives, their real dimensions, which I think are interesting and beautiful, are, are, are often, often escape notice. You know, what strikes me is that language is a carrier of our sense of self, the way we use it, the uh, way we experience it. And it but yeah. it seems to me that for most people that is unconscious. Um, yeah. And you have been somehow forced or compelled to, to, to become conscious of that, to, to reckon with it. To reckon with language. Yeah, and with how it is, how intimately connected it is with who you are at a profound level, not just in a, what you could say in a sentence, right? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't raised with very much of the language at all um, through no fault of my mother or my, my grandparents on, on her side. Of the family, uh, my grandmother was sent to boarding school in Toma, Wisconsin, at age four, and I don't think she was allowed home until she was ten. She left as a monolingual Ojibwe speaker. She came back as a monolingual English speaker. And so, there was a government program and process that tried to divest native people of their native languages, right. and really. I believe very few people were untouched by that process. So I wasn't raised with, with much of the language, although all the ceremonial doings that my, my family took me to put me face-to-face -face with that language while growing up. And um, I wanted that language to be part of me. Hmm. I should say that my older brother felt this more keenly and more strongly and sooner than hmm. I did. And, and after he left, after he graduated Princeton, he moved directly back home, and he devoted himself to learning Ojibwe. And I saw that. I saw him doing that, and uh, I admired it so much. And I wanted to have relationships with these elderly Ojibwe people for whom English was a kind of secondhand clothing that they, hmm. that they wore in public, but it really didn't define them. It didn't make sense to them, and they didn't express themselves well. And um, these were sort of these precious people that I wanted to understand, not on my terms, not on my college, Ivy League-educated terms. I wanted to understand them in their terms, and I wanted to share them. Hmm. And really the only way to do that was, was through the language. And, and there's another aspect of it, too. Which is, and this is even more important, I think, for a lot of, a lot of Native people who are involved in language revitalization efforts, is that it's always been ours. It's never been given to us. It's never our native languages aren't forced on us, and uh, it's a chance to define ourselves on and in our own terms, and in ways that have nothing to do with what's been taken. Hmm. We can define ourselves by virtue of what we've saved. Yeah. So when you talk about language revitalization, and uh, I think you are, you're referring to the same thing in a positive way when people talk about um, 
endangered languages, um, rescuing right. endangered languages. Right, um, right. But one of the things when scientists do this or anthropologists, you know, one of the things they're trying to figure out is how speech influences thought, um, mm. whether grammar is innate or learned, and how all of this forms who we are. And um, I, I'm curious to hear from your knowledge of, you know, and kind of coming back to Ojibwe and learning it mm. as an adult, um, how you experience those propositions about how language is about more than speech. Now, one thing you said is that Ojibwe... Um, is dominated by verbs. <laughs> yes, I mean, that intrigues me. So what, what difference does that make? Mm. Well, we're going to talk loose here in ways that I think, who's that linguist from MIT? He wrote The Language Instinct. Is it Steven Pinker? Steven Pinker, yeah. So I'm going to talk loose and easy in ways that Steven Pinker would not appreciate, probably. Okay. Um, he thinks there's a language instinct. He thinks grammar is hardwired and that no languages contain a special way of knowing something um, that another language wouldn't contain. And there is some, there's some interesting aspects of that argument, but um, what Ojibwe affords in terms of its, how it inflects thought process, mm-hmm. um, well, like you say, it's two-third verbs. It's a very active, fluid language. But it possesses a kind of, a kind of nuance in terms of how it can create or describe and then pose and reinvestigate actions and relationships between people and things. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, especially in one's mother tongue, you don't even think about. And I don't even exactly. know what the relationship is in terms of the, what's the percentage of nouns to verbs in English. Um, I don't know. I, but um, can you give me an example of an idea or a thought which would be transformed um, or nuanced in a different way? In, if you were saying it in Ojibwe, by this prevalence of verbs. Gosh, you asked me a really hard Okay, one. well, think of it I, I can think of, I mean, it's easier. I mean, maybe this is the nature of examples themselves. I can think of it in terms of nouns. Um, there's actually a little children's song that was recorded in the early part of the 19th century by Henry Rowe Schoolcraft, written down, that is. And then it was borrowed by Longfellow in the Song of Hiawatha, and it's about fireflies. And there's one line in that song, it's really a children's ditty, sort of like um, London Bridges, but an Ojibwe equivalent, where the word for, for firefly is wawa tesi. It says wawa tesi, wawa tesi, wawa tesi mawashin is the first line. So a literal translation would be firefly, firefly of the first two words in that line. The last word, it changed firefly, wawatisi, yeah, into mm-hmm. a verb. So you can make something a verb very easily in mm-hmm. Ojibwe. So it's basically firefly, firefly, firefly for me. Hmm. Oh. So so it has like a triple play, both, you know, be yourself for me, and then blink and coast for me, and then just fly for mm. me at the same time. And so there's there's a kind of wordplay in that little children's ditty, which is really one, a wonderful example of, of the kind of magic in the language, where you can make words do so many things at the same time. Now, you can do this with any language. You can make words do double and triple duty, and if you can't, then one shouldn't write. But, um, but Ojibwe does it in a way I think that is, that is quite special. 
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with the Ojibwe writer David Troyer. Here's another thing I noticed in your writing. You talked about the namesake, the word yeah. namesake that's important, yeah. that's really important culturally, and that's also connected to the word for body. Yeah. Um, you, when you're given an Ojibwe name, you have seven, eight, nine namesakes. You have one person who's running the ceremony, and, and the others are, participate in the ceremony. And the word for a namesake, both the person running the ceremony and these other attendants um, in the ceremony is, is niowe'e. And um, niao is my body. The idea being that when you're giving somebody a name or receiving one, you're partaking in their soul. You're basically gifting somebody a portion of your soul, which will reside then in that other person's body. And that is something that's a... Mm, a piece of knowledge uh, or sense, a piece of your identity that you carry with you through your life. Yeah, yeah. All those names, because you can get anywhere from just one to six or seven at that ceremony, which usually occurs, of course, when you're ideally when you're quite young. So when you give someone a name, you're giving them part of your soul. And when you accept a name, you're both accepting the soul given and you're giving part of your own. And so you're connected in ways that are that is profound and meaningful and communicated by the very word, which the English translation namesake doesn't really cover. Mm, um, no. And so those are the kinds of understandings which are obvious to Ojibwe speakers. In your novel, the translation of Dr. Apelles, he is described as a different person when he's feeling like a different person when he speaks the language of his tribes and others, that he can joke, he can flirt. And then there's this very evocative phrase, you say, these languages lend themselves to memory. Explain hmm. that to me. Well, myths and ideas about Indian people often obscure the true dimensions of our of our lives. And that's very much the case for, for Dr. Apelles. He's kind of shy and not very stoic and a little pudgy and uh, super smart but not very personable and um, lives in a city and works as a librarian of sorts at a very strange library. His life does not conform to any of the ideas that most people have about Indian lives. And part of the reason is that those ideas are ideas that people have in, at least in the context of America, in English. So English is almost the language that we have for storytelling about Indians hmm. is almost almost his enemy, or it's certainly not helping him express his his truest self. And it's it's these other native languages which he both had as a child and acquired as someone studying linguistics that he feels more comfortable in because he doesn't have to do combat in those languages with the trove of notions and icons and images and ideas that attend Indians in English. In these native languages, he's sort of unburdened of all of those things. And he is, he becomes sort of newly made in them. And it's easier for him to more accurately remember his past. 
because the danger is for native people too and also for for the, my character that that we're as likely to misconstrue ourselves perhaps in english and that does speak to this idea that a language carries more than words i mean i think what you're saying yeah. also is that while English can tell some of the narrative and the story of what happened to Native people. Yeah. Certain memories are only going to be kept alive in that those tongues. That's true. And, and in the Ojibwe context, two other things are kept alive in those tongues. Two very important things. One is uh, ceremonial life. Ojibwe ceremonies are, are very rigidly enforced. And this runs counter to the idea of Native spirituality as kind of a emotional and spiritual free-for-all where you just have to feel it. You can just feel it and just mm. be it and do it. And Ojibwe ceremonies run counter to that notion where they're, they're really tightly controlled in some ways. And, and orthodoxy plays a big part in, in those ceremonies, which really doesn't jive with the Give idea. Give me an example of what orthodoxy would be in a ceremony. Two, two examples. Like one, in certain Ojibwe ceremonies, you cannot do the ceremonies in any other language than Ojibwe. Hmm. And two, you cannot use any kind of modern form of technology to preserve them. And you can't talk about them either outside of the ceremony. But so we can talk about the reasons and rationale in that the substance of the ceremony itself is largely concerned with this idea of transmission and of human to human and spirit to human transmission of knowledge, healing as communicated through legends and songs and procedures. So the ceremonies can't be done in any other language. They can't be written down. They can't be recorded. You can't videotape them. And so if the language goes, those ceremonies, which are central to who we are, they go. This is a live recording of the Leech Lake Intertribal Singers performing at the Beltrami County Fairgrounds in Bemidji, Minnesota. In fact, there was an old man named Archie Mose. Archie was born in 1901. He started his ceremonial commitments when he was 14, in 1914, which he continued to his death in 1996. And uh, Archie was running one of these ceremonies. And my brother saw this where Archie was very frustrated that people weren't understanding what was supposed to be done in the ceremony. And he was frustrated with the, the level of their commitment. And he was very uncharacteristically frustrated because he was a very gentle, mm. mellow, kind guy. And so he, he left the ceremonial enclosure, sort of a wigwam of sorts. And he got up from his place in the wigwam and he walked outside and stood there and he says, in English, he said, I had to come out here because I can't use English in there. And I can't use English in there because the spirit does not understand me when I speak English. Hmm. But I want you to understand me and that's why I'm speaking English. And then he started to, to sort of yell at people. <laughs> <laughs> In English. And um, so there's there's that. But there's also this issue of, and this is a political issue too, around language, of our sovereignty, of of our 
Ojibwe tribal sovereignty. sovereignty. Tribal sovereignty. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, tribal sovereignty. And and Red Lake Reservation, the Red Lake Nation knows this so well. For example, they were going to have a, a negotiation with the state of Minnesota over some water rights. And they asked my brother to come up and interpret. And so they've done this on a number of occasions. And what happened was they delivered their testimony in Ojibwe. My brother translated for, for the representatives from Minnesota. Now, all of the people speaking Ojibwe also spoke English very, very well. And so someone asked them, well, why do you bother? And they said, well, it's really important for them to remember who we are. They tend to forget that. Hmm. Well, this is a different nation. We have a different language. This is just a reminder. You know, the statistics are um, pretty daunting, and generally in terms of languages disappearing. Um, yeah. Some have said that half to 90% of the languages now spoken on Earth might disappear in this century. And on this continent, yeah, on this continent, there were something like 300 tribal languages at first contact with Europeans. And now mm. only, I think you wrote this, only about 100 are left. Only a handful will remain by the end of this century. Ojibwe will be one of those. It will be. Um, is there something in Ojibwe culture or language that has made it more tenacious? I don't think there's anything. Um, I wouldn't privilege the language in terms of something special about it that, that has ensured its survival. But there are a couple of factors. In fact, it's such a complicated language. And it was, by the way, in the Guinness Book of World Records as being the most difficult language to learn. Hmm. I don't know how they how do they decide. <laughs> if someone okay, your job is to learn every language and tell Figure us which one, which, was, one. Right. which one was hardest. But um, so I think there actually is a vote against it. It's a difficult, complicated language. A given verb can have four thousand different forms by the time you're done monkeying around with it. Hmm. And uh, and that's not an exaggeration. That's uh, someone did a count. And uh, and so it's actually a difficult, difficult language to come to as a second language learner which makes its survival a little more precarious than a language that might be easier. I don't know what languages might be easy. All languages are both easy and hard. We all acquire them, and it's all, they're all difficult at a certain age. But I think what Ojibwe had in its favor, mostly, was geography. That until very recently, our communities in the northern United States, in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan, and, but particularly in Ontario and Manitoba, were incredibly hard to get to. <laughs> really? You think that that's part of the explanation? A hugely, a big, 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 big part of it. Because Absolutely. they were, so, it was isolated. The isolation helps. And there are reserves in Canada that you can only get to by float plane. Hmm. Ojibwe reserves that aren't accessible by road. There are no roads still to this day. And, and everyone from, from the smallest child to the oldest adult speaks Ojibwe. And it's because these places are remote, it helps. Contact with work and schools and churches and things like that and popular culture and all the kind of migrations that, that occur when you have a good highway system, right? Which all is those things dangerous were, for languages, I guess. It's dangerous for languages. Mm-hmm. So, are, so, is, so is satellite TV, which is very widely used on these remote reserves now, by the way. So the geography helps. And the ceremonies help too. This this idea that 
that language and spirituality were so closely related, they couldn't be separated. And for those Ojibwe people who remained traditional, who, who didn't want to convert to Christianity, language then became something that they also held on to. Here are some sounds from a classroom in northern Minnesota where students are taught exclusively in Ojibwe. After a short break, more with David Troyer. And you can find this show again in our Words Make Worlds library at onbeing.org. We created libraries from our 15-year archive for browsing or deep diving by theme, for teaching and reflection and conversation. Find this and an abundance of more at onbeing.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Ojibwe writer David Troyer. He grew up on the Leech Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota, where he learned the Ojibwe language for the first time as an adult. And he's been part of a larger movement to reintroduce it into the life and education of the next generation. David Troyer's story illuminates why the recovery of tribal languages and names is part of a fuller recovery of our national story and the human story. He's written a celebrated new book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, that has been nominated for a National Book Award. I interviewed him in 2008 when he was in the midst of a massive language revitalization project with his linguist brother. So you and your brother, Anton, have initiated yeah. this project to record, transcribe, and translate Ojibwe speech to compile the yeah. first practical Ojibwe language grammar. I mean, tell me how you're going about that. Slowly. Um, the way we're going about it is we're trying to capture as many different kinds of speech as we can. And in, to do that, you you are speaking with elder Usually, yeah. right? Elderly. Oh, usually elderly, yeah. Um, Ojibwe elders from Wisconsin and Minnesota and, and Ontario, mostly. And are you, you're kind of deciphering how the language works from hearing them speak it? Yeah. I mean, we, we try to, and my brother's a lot better at this than I am um, because he's a lot more fluent, but you try to maneuver the conversation into not often traveled grammatical trails. <laughs> Gosh, that's interesting. So you try to maneuver it, and it's just saying like, oh, this is what happened to me. 
so you have a first-person past tense story. When I was a kid, I went to the store, then I saw him. So you have first a third person. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then he ran into this other guy, which brings you to a weird Ojibwe um, verb form, which is third person to fourth person. We have a fourth person. Well, how does that? What's the fourth person? Well, fourth person is he said to him. So someone who's removed from the action of the story, but in, involved. So it's a, another remove oh. in time or or action. Huh. And um, so those are very few, but you know, as opposed to, well, what we said to you all mm-hmm. was different than what they said to me. And so you have, you know, second person plural to first person and then third person plural to first person. And then you have sort of dubitative actions, might have gone, should have, you know, Mm -hmm. they might have come but didn't. There's a whole special tense for something that was going to happen but never did. Mm. And um, it's... Do we have that in English? I don't know that we have it in the same kind of, with the same kind of precision that right. we have it in and Ojibwe. Right, and that sounds uh, so, different. So, like, I was going to, it's like, I, I'm going, Nindija. I went, Ningi Ija. Um, I was going to go, Ningi Ija, Ningi Ija Ban. I was going to go, but didn't, Ningi Ija Si Naban. And it's still one word. It's still, like, what I spoke was on a sentence, but just a word which has sort of accreted all of these different parts. And so the, the trick is to gather as many different examples of, of our grammar in, as they occur naturally in conversation and from as many different places and dialects as we can. And to then, we collect them, we record them basically, and then transcribe, write them down, then translate into English. I'm curious... Um... As you embarked on this adventure of of speaking with people and listening to them, mm. um, what have you discovered that you 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 never expected that has really broadened <laughs> your imagination about this word Indian, for example? Um, mm. And maybe you know, tell give me some a story or a particular people. Just yeah, there are these two guys who are first cousins that we're recording from. Um, they're from a small village on the Red Lake Reservation called Panima, which is a very remote village. And it it held on to language and to traditional customs in ways that other villages and other communities in the region had difficulty hanging on to. But there, there are these two cousins, one guy named um, Tom Stillday. Everyone calls him Tommy J. And his cousin, Eugene Stillday. And uh, they're very different in terms of personality and outlook and, and so on. But we've been recording them both. and. We went to Tommy J's house, and he's also my daughter's namesake, mm. by the way. His cousin, Eugene, was telling a story about when he was a kid, and his family was laid low by the flu. His parents, siblings, everyone but him in the small shack on the, in the village of Panima. Dead of winter, snows deep. And... Um, he described sitting by the wood stove. That he couldn't get the lantern going. His fingers were too cold and he was too scared. And he couldn't get the, the kerosene lantern going. He must have been eight or nine years old. Everyone's unconscious on the floor. Hmm. Um, and people knew about the flu. People died from it back then, especially Native people. Right. This would have been probably in the 30s, uh, late 30s maybe. And he described sitting by the stove 
which had a little grate on it, and that the only light in the cabinet was coming from the grate. And he describes the way the flames were were flickering in and out, and he sat there sort of holding on to that light as the one thing that was keeping him from freaking out. And that it would sort of it would light up in flashes his his family, with none of whom were moving on the floor. And that all of a sudden, um, in comes Tommy Jay's father, Eugene's uncle, who came in and then just took Eugene and walked him through the snow back to his house, gave him some bread. He hadn't eaten in three days, he said, and some water, and then he went back to Eugene's family and stayed with them, kept the fire going, and got them healthy again, and none of them passed away, none of them died. And I don't know that what was, what was special about it was just this sort of, this sense of family and kinship. Now, it didn't have anything necessarily to do with Ojibwe, but the telling of it in Ojibwe just was, was very meaningful to me. And I don't know how to explain it, but it was, it was like the, the, the memory of both that terror and that salvation was kept alive hmm. in equal measures, so, you know, in, in Ojibwe, in a way that was, that was so beautifully drawn by Eugene, who's such an amazingly beautiful speaker of the language. Hmm. And um, it gave me a glimpse of what life was like, how hard it was, but but how close families were and still are, of course, um, too. It, it gave me a picture of a time that I'll never experience. Right. And, a, a, and a, a portrait of a kind of poverty, a kind of vulnerability that goes with a kind of poverty that'll also, um, I've never experienced. This is taken from the recording David and Anton Troyer made of Eugene Stillday telling his story. You know, something I, I was thinking about as I was reading you, and I'm, it's occurring to me again as I'm hearing you speak, is um, another program we're working on looking into the legacy of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Mm. Um, he is very important to him, this teaching from the Talmud that words create worlds. Mm. And um, I hear that in the story you just told, and even as you're telling it, you're grasping f- for the words to describe what it was, right. and yet it comes through. Right. It's kind of, it's mysterious. The same, you know, the same the idea that, that words give life, you know, I guess is also something you find in, in Ojibwe um, culture. Hmm. In one part of the creation story, you know, we were made out of fairly inert materials, and we had no life until until touched by sort of breath of the Creator. We were we were blown on, and then and then came to life. And this this link, of course, between language and breath, hmm. speech and breath, is very much alive in, in how the ceremonies, Ojibwe ceremonies, continue. 
Um, the Jubilee ceremonies are based around sort of two things, mostly either uh, legend telling, one thing, storytelling, but a very particular kind, and also um, song. And there's very much a sense that the song is, is when being sung in, in, as part of a ceremony, is going right from both the vessel of the drum being used and into the singer or through the singer and then directly into the, into the body of, of the person receiving the song. And um, the words are, and the, of course the tune, one would hope, <laughs> um, but the words are communicating and giving that person life as we were given life originally. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the Ojibwe writer David Troyer. You once wrote that if your language was lost, if Ojibwe were lost, um, we will lose beauty. Yeah. What do you mean by that? What, what, what is in your mind when you say that in your heart? Well, like that story I was talking about that, that Eugene shared with us um, is one example of that. And, um, you know, maybe I could draw on a, a different tradition, which would be a French literary tradition to come <laughs> to explain it better. But, <laughs> yep. but Marcel Proust said that, particularly speaking of writing novels, said that nothing really exists in and of itself in a, in a book. That, that characters and situations and places only take on life by way of contrast. That's how novels build themselves, or through, through creating contrasts and intentions, resolutions and more contrasts and tensions. And um, I think the same could be said for, for life, hmm. that nothing exists in and of itself. Everything exists only by way of contrast. So in and of itself, I think Ojibwe is, is beautiful, just the, the, the animal sound of the language, how it flows, to, to the kinds of trickery that the, that the words themselves can rig up, like the example of the firefly I gave you. Um, but also um, in contrast to the English with which we are surrounded, Ojibwe seems all the more precious, you know, all the more beautiful. I think you might look at at the narrowing down of the number of languages in the world as kind of a natural process. It would be possible to say that that's even progress, right? That it comes with technology and with a more unified world. I, I could imagine someone making that case and then asking, People, yeah. right? You know, and then saying, you know, the question would be, but I, I think you you were just you were just giving an answer to that question. Now, why why really? Although it might be tragic to you, it might be tragic to people you know. Why? Why should this ultimately matter um, to people who don't speak this language and know nothing of it, and whose identity is not formed by it? Mm. Yeah, I think you know, great advances in communication, for instance, maybe brought the world closer together. And this might be a cynic's point of view, but it brought us close enough to really hurt each other. <laughs> <laughs> in things like the First World War, the Second World War, more recent endeavors. It hasn't 
led to sort of, you know, a great love-in and mutual understanding. Now there is, of course, progress in some ways, naturally. But language, if, if all languages were to die out and be per- replaced with one, and there were movements and sort of utopian movements along these lines. Esperanto, I think, yes, is one of them, Esperanto. right? Mm-hmm. That the idea was that if we all spoke the same language, we, there'd be no misunderstanding. And um, <laughs> I don't think that's true. And in fact, I don't think misunderstanding is the culprit here. Um, I think, you know, I think the culprit in terms of conflict, you know, deadly or otherwise, is is the sense that that you know, we should all be doing the same thing. Hmm. And I, I I think that we're quite happily busily doing different things, and that is, in fact, healthy. And the, yeah. so the culprit is an inability to live creatively with difference. Perhaps so, hmm. yeah. You know, you wrote an article in the L.A. Times, um, and you tell a story in there. You describe a moment of kind of epiphany. Yeah. You were spearing with friends on a lake in their treaty area. And, I mean, I do, first of all, want you to talk about what it meant that you were spearing and how does that activity um, figure in? What what in itself does it mean? Well, um, I was spending time with two friends from Le Couture Reservation in, in um, north-central Wisconsin. And on Le Couture and in that region, they, they've retained, they fought for, in fact, starting in the 70s and concluding recently, uh, fought for and retained their, their off-reservation treaty rights, many of them. One of those treaty rights is the um, the right to harvest fish, particularly walleye pike, um, with using quote unquote primitive methods. That is to say, spears and nets, and to do this before the state season opens, the state angling season. Now, this all the spearing and netting is very tightly controlled by the tribe and and um, monitored, and and you know people tend to guard this right. And to, to use it wisely. So, although I'm Ojibwe and I'm, I'm from a different band, from a different region, and I, my band was not a, did not sign that particular treaty, so I cannot spearfish in that particular area. So I was just hanging out. Okay. Basically, I was drink, I was drinking coffee. They're right. spearing, and um, and so you know, for them, it's 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 a it's many things at once. Um, they're practicing a treaty right, which was denied them for many, many years. And so it's a political act to go out and to go to the boat landings and offload their, their boats and to go spearing on lakes ringed with the resort homes of, of wealthy Americans in northern Wisconsin. And to be heckled and shouted at and have things thrown off docks at them. This, this, these things have happened. It happens. It happens with some regularity. And, uh, and people shouting things, my favorite, my favorite epithet shouted at, at sort of Ojibwe people spearfishing in the treaty areas, Indians go home, <laughs> which I, I just think is so funny. Yeah. <laughs> and um, in any event, so, so it's political. Spiritually, too, whenever an Ojibwe person takes something, this is one of our few instructions, we don't really have commandments, is to um, always at least in our cosmology, honor the other beings, the fact of the matter is that those fish were here a long time before we were, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, humans evolved many millions of years after these fish did. So the fish are our elders in a sense, and respect is owed them as elders in a way. And so you 
harvest the fish, you, you, you kill them with spears is probably the best way to put them, or you, you trap them in nets, which also kills them. You fillet them, you, you, and then the, the first bunch you eat before the season, you'll have, you'll have a, a feast and a small ceremony, usually just a family thing, where you'll give thanks to and for the fish, hmm. but it's a way of becoming closer to them. That's um, so interesting. I mean, it's, it's counterintuitive. So it's sort of counter, kind of, yeah. It is counterintuitive. And so there's a sense that you know to become you can become closer if you want to put it another way by killing. And there's actually another Ojibwe idea about that where um, when people are have lost a loved one and they go into mourning, they go into an official mourning, and it's only a veteran who can bring them out of their official mourning. It's only a what a veteran? A veteran, someone who's been to war. The idea being that since they've taken life, they've, the phrase that people use is in Ojibwe is to touch blood. That huh. only those who have touched blood can wash away someone's sorrow because they are so intimately related to it, right? Huh. And with the fish, it's, it's, it's a, a similar kind of relationship that to really know them, you become related by the taking hmm. and the giving, because then the fish is dispersed to people who don't fish. And it's also a chance for one's ancestors to come back and to eat the food that they would have eaten in their lifetime, hmm. to feed them. And so this is done for fish. It's done for the first batch of maple syrup. It's done for, for um, first kills in the fall, you know, in terms of you know, animals that one, one might shoot, uh, deer, ducks, rabbits, things like that. And... Um, it's done particularly for wild rice, which is our biggest food and our most probably our most important food. So the moment of epiphany, you're uh, drinking coffee while your friends are spearing. Yes. And what we, happened? Well, we're in the boat. It's dark. It's foggy. And we're just chatting and speaking Ojibwe and also speaking English, too, sort of diving back and forth between the two. And these are two guys who have been, who've been instrumental with a group of other people in starting an immersion school on that reservation, which is an Ojibwe language immersion school, which has had fantastic success. I mean, these, these two guys and, and their families and, and the people they work with, and there's a big long list of them, have done amazing and important work. And so it's, it's just, I admire them both a lot, and they're both really funny too, and so we're having a good time. And you, you do your spearing really close to shore in the shallow water, so we're maybe 15, 20 feet from shore. Most of the houses are boarded up. It's April, and uh, the vacationers haven't come back to their cabins yet. But a few of them are occupied year-round, and, and somebody must have had their window open. I can see lights flickering in the house, so that sort of eerie blue glow of someone's television. And I can hear the program they're watching, and they're watching David Letterman. <laughs> and the top ten list was on. The countdown, the top ten countdown. And it just seemed so out of place and so impermanent and so weak, thin, and, and just passing, as passing as the fog that night. That compared to how permanent the endeavor of spearing with these guys felt. You know, this is something we've been doing for so long and still doing. Mm-hmm. And still doing with and in the language and still respecting the fish the way that they're supposed to be respected. That felt permanent in comparison. That felt everlasting. And I felt our language can't possibly die. Not with people like this. Hmm. Not while doing something like this in this place. 
we can't possibly lose it. And I don't always feel that way, but I, I felt it then. And I feel that more often than I feel scared that we're going to lose it. David Troyer divides his time between the Leech Lake Reservation and Los Angeles, where he teaches literature and creative writing at the University of Southern California. His books include Native American Fiction, A User's Manual, The Translation of Dr. Apelles, and most recently, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. His writing has also appeared in The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and The Washington Post. In closing, here is one of the friends with whom David Troyer was speaking that day, Keller Papp, singing a song about snaring rabbits with the students at his Ojibwe Immersion School, which has been going now since 2001. Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Kalasako, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, and Colleen Sheck. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at HumanityUnited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 